This is, uh, I believe, one of the weeks we said we would do open form. Um, we're not going to do it again until July, but here in May, the first week in the month, you have an opportunity to raise a question. I'm not certain that I have any um, sure answers to the questions that you would bring. If, I, if not, I'll, I'll, I'll confess that freely. But if I can be help, of help to you, I will certainly desire to do that. So has anybody come this morning um, uh, with a question that you'd like to raise in open form? Well, I don't see anybody responding to the, 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 the offer. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> there was a something from last week that uh, was asked of me and it was in fact an oversight, it was something that I thought to, to address but did not, so I think it would be good to do that in a more general way uh, this morning. Uh, we've been looking at the book of 2 Corinthians and the section in chapter 3 in particular where Paul makes a great, uh, great uh, chasm of distinction between the old covenant that was an administration of death, it's a ministry of death um, versus the spirit, which was a ministry of life. He makes a large distinction between that which is the, the written code, that which is found in letters, um, written by the finger of God on tables of stone, and, and that which is written in human hearts by the spirit of God. And um, this great difference between old and new covenant um, is something that um, a lot of times doesn't get appreciated as much as it should be appreciated. Um, again, there was no one saying the old covenant was not ordained by God. It certainly was. But it was something that was ordained by God, not so much as a redemptive covenant in the sense that it brings spiritual salvation. No, it brought rescue from Egyptian bondage. That's what it brought. It brought the people out of servitude uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt. That, of course, becomes a great picture of the liberating work of Jesus who liberates us from our slavery to sin our bondage to the world, the flesh and the devil and uh, certainly it gives uh, something of a picture of, uh, uh, of, of Jesus as the uh, true Israelite who himself is, uh, is brought out of Egypt and himself is the one who um, is tempted in the wilderness and who himself is the one who um, um, brings uh, a new law, brings uh, the words from not Sinai, but the Sermon on the Mount and the instruction that we have that we're told in Scripture that we're not under the law, but we're under the law of Christ. We come into the embrace of Jesus as our Lord, who's um, uh, not only commands, but he helps in the keeping of the commands. Um, so that, again, there is this large uh, diversity of uh, this large um, chasm of difference. And I tried to accentuate that um, last week. But there was one thing I really failed to underscore, and it was raised, and, and that's the question, well, if that's true, what about the Old Covenant saints, who in so many ways seems to, seem to excel us? <laughs> I mean, read the Psalms, for instance, filled with the sense of God's presence and the knowledge of God, and uh, just the, the high uh, measure of spirituality that suffuses uh, the Psalms, the, the Proverbs, the um, the book of the prophets, the books of the prophets, high morality and certainly outstrips what many of us ever perform and we are laid bare uh, in terms of our own uh, failures, uh, even as Israel was laid bare by the, the prophets uh, when they brought God's word. Um, and there's no question that the Spirit of God was active and present amongst the old covenant people of God. And the fact that we say it was a ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament and a ministry of death in the Old Testament or a ministry of the written code written by the, you know, on, 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 on uh, you know, tables of stone rather than the, the fleshy tables of human hearts um, is not meant to minimize the reality of the presence and powerful working of the Spirit of God under the Old Testament. Um, but we need to understand that the blessings 
of salvation come to us, both Old and New Testament, through Christ, through his redemptive work. Uh, it's Jesus' work of cro- uh, on the cross, and, um, oh, I don't know how to draw an open tomb, <laughs> but the resurrection, the ascension, uh, the, throne, the throne of glory, um, all that comprises the basis of the blessings of the salvation of God. Those blessings that become realized in the coming of the new covenant. The new covenant that's inaugurated through the shedding of the blood of the new covenant. Uh, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We say that every month when we do communion. And the recognition, Christ brought in the new covenant through the shedding of his blood. But though in time this takes place, the blessings that take place as a result of the new covenant not only flow from the cross forward into the experience of every successive generation of believers who come to faith in Christ, but also work this way backward in time in terms of the blessings of the new covenant coming to Old Testament saints who were under the old covenant. And yet they were believers. They had come to faith. And so the blessings of the new covenant are really retroactive And there's a number of scriptures in the New Testament that really point us in that direction. Um, One of them is in the third chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. Here you have uh, the display of of, of gospel that uh, comes about on the backdrop of human sin. Paul has declared that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in verse 23 and are justified by his grace. Fallen sinners, fallen short of God's glory, are justified by his grace as a gift, freely. Nothing that we've done that can, that would um, put God in our debt. No, everything is free, freely by grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. rich language about Christian salvation coming to us through the cross of Christ. Christ's work on the cross is a redemption. It's a buying out of the slaves, bringing us out of our bondage, bringing us unto God. It's a propitiation, which is a sacrifice that turns away justice against our uh, our sins, removes the wrath that is due to us. And it's all through the blood that Jesus shed upon the cross. And it's something that becomes ours by faith. But does it only become ours by faith? Well, it's also became uh, those blessings of redemption to those who by faith had been trusting Yahweh under the old covenant. David and Moses and Job and Daniel and the righteous of, 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 of the whole Old Testament period were the recipients of the blessings of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The former sins. The sins of the old covenant people of God. Those were passed over. Lord, if you had marked our iniquities, who could stand? 130th Psalm says. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God passed over their sins. He forgave their sins. He blot out their sins. Some of the great expressions of forgiveness are not New Testament, it's Old Testament. That he, he removed our iniquities from us as far as east is from the west. So far as he removed our transgressions from us. He's blotted, blot, blotted them out as a cloud, Isaiah declares. Uh, Micah 6 says he's trampled them underfoot and cast them into the depths of the sea glorious pictures of forgiveness and yet forgiveness is really a new covenant blessing it's a blessing that flows from the cross the cross that provides redemption the cross that provides propitiation 
And if Jesus had not died, there could be no forgiveness. But God knew that Jesus would die. He knew that the price would be paid. And in his divine forbearance, even though the price hadn't been paid in time, yet God is the eternal God. He is not dwelling in time. Uh, there's a passage in the book of uh, First Peter that speaks about Christ um, who was um, uh, foreordained before the foundation of the world. Um, at least, uh, let me get the language clear. Look at the book of First Peter. I kind of botched that one. But let's look at First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. It's the language of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the, of, of the world. And that's found down in, um, in verse, um, let's begin with 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, the language of the Passover sacrifice. The lamb that was without spot or blemish. Most of those were lambs that were needed for the sacrifice of the old covenant system. God provided that as a reminder of sins and a perennial um, sacrifice that, again, um, showed the need for atonement. But atonement doesn't come till Christ comes. And so um, it says that this lamb, uh, the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot, blemish, or spot, is the lamb of is one of uh, that the lamb who was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you or for your sake, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope are in time. So Peter says Christ was manifest in time. In time he was incarnate. In time he lived that perfect life of obedience that we could not live in. uh, And he died the death of the cross in time. But uh, the the work of the cross in time is the power of it is not limited by time. (laughs) Again, he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And God knew what he would do in time in sending Christ to be the propitiation, to be the sin bearer, to pay the price for our sins. So the blessings that are new covenant blessings, again, forgiveness is a new covenant blessing. Uh, Again, the new covenant that God makes with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in uh, Jeremiah 31. Turn there, Jeremiah 31. Again, this is a prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament concerning God's institution of a new covenant, the bringing in of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. So it's easy to memorize where this is found. It's in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. And I should point out that this is quoted in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews 10 uh, as the new covenant that was brought in through uh, a better sacrifice based on better promises through a better mediator, the, language, the argument of the book of Hebrews, the better things that come through Jesus is the fulfillment of this word of the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, um, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, let's not get bogged down and say, well, it has to be literally the um, house of Israel, meaning the 12 tribes, even though at this point in time the 12 tribes were, were extinct. They, they were taken captive by the Assyrians 100 years before. And you didn't have many of the tribes still in existence at the time of Jeremiah. Is Jeremiah expecting God's going to somehow put together the tribe of Dan and Naphtali and Zebulun? No. This can be a reconstituting of a nation that in the New Covenant is viewed as a spiritual nation. You're the royal priesthood. You're the holy nation. Uh, you're the people for God's possession. It's fulfilled in Christ. Again, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Christ brings in this new covenant, and it's not limited to ethnic Jews. It's a reconstituted nation that brings in and engrafts, as Paul's language in Romans 11, engrafts into the olive tree Gentile branches 
who believe, even as unbelieving Jews are, are uh, uh, excluded. Uh, believing Gentiles are included. And so this is the terms of the new covenant. It's not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant which was the Sinai covenant. That's what happened at Mount Sinai when God delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And why does God need to bring it in a new covenant? Why was not the old covenant sufficient? Well, Jeremiah says, my covenant that they broke. It was a broken covenant. It wasn't a covenant that they kept. Again, they worshipped the golden calf, and Moses literally took the tablets of stone and broke them. And that's something of a picture of the way in which the treaty that God made with this people to be their God got broken, continually broken. It was literally broken. In the, but continually the prophets invade against the nation for their unfaithfulness, their, their spiritual adultery, their failure to keep covenant with God and the curses of the covenant that you read about in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, uh, including exile, came upon the nation. So a new covenant is needed because there's, there's defect, defect in the old covenant. The old covenant is breakable. New covenant is not breakable because it's based on Christ's sacrifice. It's based upon promises that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. In him, the promise is fulfilled. And we'll say more about the reason that it's an unbreakable covenant. But um, here you see that that's the problem of the old covenant. It was breakable. Though I was a husband... Their husband declares Yahweh, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. And this is what Paul talks about in First Second Corinthians three. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So forgiveness is a new covenant blessing. It's properly belonging to the new covenant. And so when you think of the, think of the blessings of the, of the new covenant... Uh, the final one here is, uh, the third one is forgiveness. I'll forgive their iniquities and their sins I'll remember no more. But there's two other blessings that are in this passage. Who can pick them out? What are the other two blessings? Jeremiah 31. Okay, put the law in our hearts. He's going to internalize the law. Well, how does the law get internalized? I mean, Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, your, law, your word was found and I ate it. Do we eat the law to get it internalized? How does the law get inward within us? How does God write his law in our hearts? Uh-huh. Like the first thought that came to my mind was that the Holy Spirit indwells us, but that doesn't make, that's not your answer. That is the answer. It's absolutely the answer. And the Holy Spirit. That, the law of God's internalized by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's why it's a ministration of the Spirit. This matter that's not upon uh, tables of stone, but in hearts, that's why Paul says it's a ministration of the Spirit. It's the working of the Spirit in us that brings the law inwardly in our hearts. That's why as Christians we, we are sensitive to moral rights and wrongs. We have a sense that that's wrong. And we don't have a great deal of instruction given to us to say to murder is wrong, to blasphemy is wrong. And we have the inward sense because we're taught of God. We're taught of God through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So there's this internal work of God within through the Holy Spirit. So the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Who writes the law of God in our hearts? And then what's the other ones? There's one other. They shall all what? Know me. 
So there's the knowledge of God. There is that bond with God where we know Him. We're known of Him and we know Him. So there's the inward communion, that relationship, that knowledge, not just knowledge about Him, but knowledge of Him. Um, that God gives to the new covenant people of God. So there's no need to say to every member of the new covenant, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So in other words, when we identify who the new covenant, who, who is the, 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 the ones who participate in the new covenant, who is the new covenant community? Um, the new covenant community are believers. The New Covenant community, you don't need to evangelize. You don't have to say, know the Lord. Now, we have to tell our children, know the Lord. And that's why they're not part of the New Covenant community. We have to evangelize our children. That's why we don't baptize them. Um, we don't baptize anybody that walks on the street. I mean, I know there are churches that do, but we don't until they're evangelized. We have to tell them, know the Lord. And when we're convinced they've come to know the Lord, then they're candidates for baptism, but not before. They're not to be recognized as part of the new covenant community. The old covenant community, you just had to be born of a, of a, of a, a parent who was part of the nation of Israel. And you were um, circumcised, or else you could be a proselyte and be converted but through circumcision and become part at least the males be circumcised and be part of the old covenant people of God. But there were these blessings that are spiritual blessings. The blessings of the Holy Spirit. The blessing of the knowledge of God. The blessing of forgiveness of sins. All of these are new covenant blessings. And Jesus' forgiveness is a new covenant blessing that we saw found its way back into the old covenant period of time so that believers in Yahweh were forgiven of their sins so the believers of the old covenant knew the Lord they walked with God they communed with God they knew him and they were also people filled with the Holy Spirit they possessed the Holy Spirit not as an old covenant blessing there was no guarantee for these blessings to be in the people it's that they believed it's that God worked in their hearts and consequent upon faith they become Old Testament believers who are possessors of New Testament blessings and so that's why Jesus says they will come from the east, the west, and the north and the south to do what? to sit down with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. The believers under the new covenant have spiritual communion with the old covenant patriarchs. We have communion with the old covenant people of God. We are people of the same faith. We are people of the same worshippers of the same God, possessors of the same hope, lovers of the same Christ possessors of the same forgiveness, having common knowledge of the one true and living God, possessing um, the Spirit of God. And somehow believers are able more readily to see well, Old Testament believers were forgiven, even though it's a New, Test New Covenant blessing, but they have a, a more of a problem seeing how Old Testament believers possessed the spirit when the spirit had not yet been given and of course we have John who makes a statement about that in John chapter 7 John chapter 7 the great day of the feast when Jesus rose and said if any man if anyone thirsts let him come to me let's look at it John chapter 7 Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, you look at that on the surface and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This new covenant blessing they hadn't received. The receiving of the Spirit is at Pentecost and not before. So before, before Pentecost, no one received the Spirit. Let me ask you this. Did anyone receive living water? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Did they get living water when they believed before Pentecost? I mean, if they didn't, then people could come up to him and say, Jesus, you said he that believes out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. We came and we believed and living water didn't happen. There's no reality of living water. Now, the living water is the, is, is the blessing of the Spirit. And the Spirit is given in history at Pentecost. There was not a general outpouring of the Spirit until Pentecost came. Again, the uh, day of Pentecost, uh, Peter rises and says, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And the prophet Joel speaks of a time in which the Spirit would be given and given and in a way that he calls poured out and given and poured out upon a multitude that's not just Jews but he says all flesh and so there is this distinct event that's till, still to come um, look at it in cha- Joel chapter 2 in verse 28 Now, verse 28 in the ESV says, it shall come to pass afterward. But it's, it's an expression, I'm not sure that's the best translation, but it's, a tra- it's, a, it's an expression that's similar to other expressions that speak of the end of the times, so the end of the days. Afterward, at the end of the days. And that's how it's viewed in the way Peter um, quotes it in Acts chapter 2. Um, in the last days, I think he says, he views it as the last days. So it's the, it's the end of time. It's, it's in the time of God's fulfillment of his promises to his people. That's what that language of the end times means, or that day. It's the day of the fulfillment of the promises. When God fulfills his promises in the coming of the Messiah, in the work of Jesus, and in the giving of the Holy Spirit. What will God do? in those last days. What will he do in the day of the fulfillment of the promises? Well, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And the language there speaks of the plentifulness of it and also of the universality of it. It will be poured out on all flesh. It won't just be Jews, but it will be all the nations will be the recipients of the Holy Spirit. And not only your sons, but also your daughters. Again, the sons tended to be the privileged in the ancient world and in the people of Israel, among the people of Israel, but even the daughters will prophesy. There was a priority of youth versus old age. Not so much in the old world, but here it's old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. And then even on the slaves, even on the male and female servants, the slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So it's going to be a universal pouring out of the Spirit that's going to knock down all the boundaries that divide people. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slaves and free. All of them are going to become the people of God. All of them are going to be engrafted into the one people of God in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the days when God fulfills His promises in the days of the Messiah. That's the expectation. And so this is now pouring this universal. It's now pouring this... Uh, um, not just stingy, it's, 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 it's liberal. And, and, you know, that's in contrast to what you do see in the Old Testament. Again, the Spirit of God came upon people, but not in this general way. Again, remember in Numbers 13, you have that uh, sharing of the Spirit that was upon Moses with the 70 
elders that were going to help him. And something of the spirit of Moses was placed upon them. And then there were two guys that were in the tent and they were prophesying Eldad and Medad, I think their names were. And Moses is told, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the tent. Should we stop them? And Moses says, no, no, no. He says, would to God that all of the Lord's servants were prophets and that God put his spirit upon all of his people. That's Moses' yearning. That's Moses' desire. Because it wasn't the experience of the people of Israel. The spirit was present in individuals, but it wasn't poured out. And it wasn't poured out generally. And it wasn't poured out generally upon the Old Testament people of God. Never mind the Gentiles. It wasn't poured out upon the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel. There were only a few, a few that had the Spirit. There were some that had the Spirit. I won't say a few. But there were some that had the Spirit. Seventy elders that we know about. Moses we know about. Um, but the generality of the people were without the Spirit. I think that would sim- simply be the picture. And so there was no provision for the Spirit, or no knowledge of God, or forgiveness of sins. No wonder it was a covenant doomed to fail. <laughs> no wonder it was a covenant that was a covenant administration of death. There's an old idea that the dispensationalists came up with that uh, spoke of the seven dispensations in which uh, God tried all these different means to get people right with him and none of it worked. Right? That was the dispensation. Was, was that? Um, I have a question. Like sure. That the Spirit is poured out in the New Covenant generally. And I think you mean that that engrafts in the Gentiles because it's only believers that get the Spirit. Right. Okay. But in the Old Testament, you're saying that it's only these certain ones that had the Spirit, and not generally. But it's just the believers in the Old Testament also, just the same as in the New Testament. Yeah. Okay. But I don't think you have any, you don't have language like the pouring out of the Spirit. You have the Spirit working, you know. Usually it was people that were given the Spirit to be possessing wisdom to serve God in a given capacity. Um, like the uh, uh, the craftsmen that uh, made the things for the tabernacle and the temple, they were given the spirit to function in those ways. Um, and whether that was a sanctifying work of the spirit, I mean, we don't know. Could have been. It may have been. But there wasn't this general outpouring of the spirit. What I'm saying is that genuine believers possess the spirit. Now, they didn't possess the Spirit as we possess the Spirit, as the Spirit of the glorified Jesus. I mean, because they didn't have that concept. It hadn't yet happened. So there were things about um, our relationship to God that is different. It's better. It's, it's, it's uh, of a higher level, let's say. Well, for instance, the idea of union with Christ. There are no Testament believer, no union with Christ. Certainly a union they had with God through faith. They walked with God. There was blessings and privileges galore that the people of the Old Covenant possessed. But I think there's a higher blessing that we possess because we have higher knowledge, wisdom, understanding because we have the the fulfillment of God's work in Christ. And that's the reason, I I, I believe, why why Jesus says of John the Baptist, of all that were born of women, there's none greater than John, but, but... He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. How could that be? How could that be? Because John never lived to see the fulfillment of the things he hoped for. I think he far outstrips us in terms of the light that he had and the way he used his light. But um, still, in comparison to what we possess as those who were the ones living in the time of the fulfillment of Christ's work. Uh, what we possess is, is far greater. But it's not that they didn't possess the Holy Spirit, and it's not that they didn't possess the knowledge of God, and it's not that they didn't possess forgiveness of sins. And in some ways, in some points, it was even superior to anything that we know in terms of at least how they expressed forgiveness and what it was. That's, I don't see anything in the New Testament that rises to that, you know, to what Old Testament saints spoke about. Maybe there's just a deeper knowledge of sin and the need for forgiveness. But uh, the wonderful reality of forgiveness was certainly known by them. Uh, we had some hands going up. Uh, Tim? Was there an aspect in the Old Testament that 
given and then was taken away? You know, like the, some of the leaders? Or, I, I... Yeah, people get that from Psalm 51, where David in prayer says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And um, I don't think that's a question Saul of... This, I'm sorry? Saul had the Spirit on him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but again, here's a, here, that could be the working of the Spirit in terms of uh, a function that the king was to give, was to perform, and then because of his disobedience, um, when the Spirit was taken from him, a, a, a maddening Spirit was given to him. Um, yeah, um, but I don't think it's that the Spirit was coming and going upon people. I think believers possess the Spirit. I think when David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, it's just the same sort of thing that we would talk about when we would speak about the Spirit being quenched or the Spirit being grieved, that the influences of the Spirit in us and with us would not be well seen and understood and experienced by us. So in that sense, uh, you know, we would have, we, there would be the sense of the desertion of the Spirit because of sin. So I think that's what David is uh, speaking about. I wouldn't build a doctrine based upon those things of, of a coming and going spirit. Although I know some do. And uh, I'm not getting into tremendous debate about it because we don't know. We don't know. I just don't think that that's what those passages are saying. So I think that they had all of the, the richness of the blessings that we possess, but not the same knowledge and understanding that we possess because of the place we are in in terms of the history of redemption that we live in the light of the full accomplishment of Christ's work so does that make sense to you see how it works uh, in terms of the things that we know and experience but the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers would not be reft of those experiences and those realities that we possess because they were they're part of uh, the people of God. It's one people of God. And one people of God that are comprised of true believers, both Old and New Testament. Of course, you look at the book of um, Revelation, and you see that the eternal state is going to be comprised of, the, of a city that has as its foundations the twelve apostles, I mean the twelve patriarchs, and upon its gates are the, are the names of the twelve apostles. So both Old and New Testament saints who are possessors of the, of the same blessings. Yes, Jan. So I kept thinking about that in the Old Testament, the spirit was thought more of, of an influence of God rather than in the New Testament where it's a person and presence. The spirit is a person and presence rather than an influence. Um, I would not go there. I would think the Spirit's the Spirit, and since the Spirit is a person, they may not have had the understanding that we have of the person of the Spirit, but yet the Spirit is the personal presence of God. But I'm saying, did, did they, obviously, I'm saying that that's how they viewed the Spirit, as more of an influence of God rather than a person of their presence because they didn't have that life. Um, that may be. That may be. Uh, I just know. I just think they knew God was there. God was present, and the way God is present in the Old Testament is in n- numerous ways. He's He's present through the angel of the Lord. He's present through the Shekinah glory. He's present through the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And he's also present by a spirit, and the spirit becomes the abiding presence. And I believe the spirit was the abiding presence with true believers. Um, but again, we don't have enough biblical information. To just say that, to put that statement in stone. We just have to say that provisionally. That just as there's not a different kind of forgiveness, but there may be a different understanding of the foundation of our forgiveness or the basis of our forgiveness rooted in the cross of Jesus, uh, this forgiveness. Sins are remitted, sins are washed away, sins are blotted out. Access to God is, is reality for them. They knew God. And many of them knew God a lot better than we know God. <laughs> Just in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, we should know much more than we know. We'll say more of that this morning. But, um, you know, many of the Old Testament prophets, we just, uh, 
envy something of the experience of the, I mean think of David in terms or, or the psalmist in terms of yearning for worship that's reflected in the psalms how many of you got up this morning and said oh how I love your house oh lord how many of you got up this morning and I'm not saying you never did that but I'm saying the yearning and desire for fellowship with God was so keen and, and so um, admirable. And we look at that and we say, man, they knew something that I tend not to know as much as I should. I wish I had that kind of hunger. As the heart pants after the water brook, so I pant after you, O God. Um, when will I appear before God? Um, the yearning for God. From the ends of the earth I call unto you, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There's so many wonderful expressions of yearning for God and desiring God um, that, uh, again, we take those words upon our lips and, you know, that's they're perfectly suitable for Christian prayer. So, you know, I wouldn't want to make all that great a distinction between the actual re- religious experience, if we could call it that, between Old Testament and New Testament saints. The main area of difference is what we perceive because of the fulfillment of the promises that they were looking for, looking for but never, never saw, never entered in to their, to their realization. We live in the light of the realization. Any? Yes, Tom. Category up there of knowing God. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many expressions, and it seems to me there's many expressions in the Old Testament that God teaches or gives um, miraculous events and signs and wonders that says, "And you shall know me," and th- either through the prophets or through miracles that God says, "This shall be done that you should know me." Mm-hmm. And many times that expression to know me is repeated in the Old Testament in a way of um, a strong event or a strong prophet teaching and declaring something very uh, almost miraculously I guess I would say that that the people would know God and Mm -hmm. that the prophets would know God Mm -hmm. Um, do you see is there an equivalent in the New Testament, I know we have the scriptures and you're talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But is there anything, what do you think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking towards the New Testament to say that expression is not there so much in that uh, uh, that many times in the New Testament in that way. What's, what would be an equivalent? Well, I think Jesus is saying, if you don't believe, believe for the sake of the works. <laughs> Look at these miracles that were done. So I think what God is doing in many of these passages when he's saying that when I do this, then you will know me, is again, he's dealing with the people that didn't know him. That there wasn't a, a religious fear of God. And um, he's many of those expressions, particularly, I think, of the book of Ezekiel, as a book that is, abounds in that sort of language. And uh, I think it's because, again, the people did not know him. And it's God's judgments that uh, displayed um, his attributes. I think it's in the sense of, uh, when I do these things, you will know um, that I've spoken. You will know uh, that I am just. You will know that I fulfill uh, my words, that I watch over my words to perform it. Um, but again, I think the knowledge of God, you know, knowledge is a, is a funny thing. It can speak of, of just awareness of, uh, of facts, you know. Um, my wife, I'm sure you have a resume, don't you, Jan? That, uh, well, you know, I had, I had to do a resume one time. I don't know what the status many, many years ago. But... Um, I could give you my resume and give you a lot of information about me. And you could say, well, well I know him. He, uh, he worked here. He worked there. He was born there. He is educated there. And you have a lot of knowledge about me. But then you meet me. And there is a knowledge that's 
personal. And when the intimacy is of the level of a husband and a wife, then that's a much deeper knowledge. In fact, even the, not, the, word, the language of knowledge is used of the intimacy of the sexual bond in the sense of Adam knew his wife and she conceived and gave birth. So, you know, knowledge, it could be as basic as uh, awareness and it could be as deep as the intimacy of a husband and a wife. Um, but I think this knowledge that's being spoken of here is that intimate knowledge. It's not just that we know about God and we can give a proper statement. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. And we can say that statement of the question four of the Shorty Catechism and, and get, it, get it right. But people who don't know God can also parrot the proper language and even do it with a certain sense of appreciation. Um, and people can know the attributes of God and have a certain sense of admiration about those attributes. Look at a starry night and just see the inf- infinite space that is before our eyes, seemingly infinite space, and say, God made all that. And they could get overwhelmed and they could write poetry and they could have you know, deep feelings that uh, the revelation of God in creation can bring. But that doesn't mean they know God in the sense that we um, speak about it in terms of regeneration. Um, we're going to see this morning in the John chapter 14, Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and do you still not know me? Still not know me. Well, Philip knew Jesus. But yet there was aspects of Jesus that he didn't know. And uh, were still hidden to him. And, and, and much to our shame, I think we all can apply that sort of language. Have I been with you so long? Church in Pinebush, and do you not still not know me? In terms of a deepening awareness of um, the things we profess and believe. So um, yeah, that's why we grow in, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, but there is knowledge in the sense of intimate religious attachment, affection, experience. We've experienced the knowledge of God. Yes. When the disciples said, Who is this that comes in the Yes. And when they say, uh, Has any man ever taught like this? Could he be the Messiah? So a lot of his works, his miracles, his teaching led to the question, Who is this? Yeah. And, and led to some seeking who he was and knowing him when others did not. So the play of the miraculous and the teaching led to further knowledge and some acknowledged him and some did not. So I guess right, right now, things don't work that way. Um, so knowledge of him comes through the preaching of the word, the sharing of the gospel. So we're not looking for a miraculous event yeah. to show a person who Christ is. Well, again, in the Bible, miraculous events don't bring faith. Um, God did signs and wonders in Egypt. That's the first time we read about signs and wonders. It was the signs and wonders that he did in Egypt. Did that lead to Pharaoh's repentance? Did it lead to his faith? Well, well no. Um, did it lead to the nations that heard that God did these things, that they all bow their knee in allegiance and worship to Yahweh and embrace his people? No. No. Um, and again, I think many of the things that the prophets are speaking about of God doing these mighty works, then you shall know, doesn't necessarily mean they're converted. But it, uh, you know, these are just the impressive displays of, of, of God. Believe for the sake of the works, Jesus says. This is something that should, again, it's, they're signs. They're signs. And then when you see a sign, you say, well, what does this signify? Well, the people that understand that these signs signify that Yahweh is God, bow the knee in worship and allegiance, and do that, well, the signs done 
something that in the grace of God brings about conversion. But the sign itself doesn't bring about conversion. Uh, When the rich man says to Abraham, let me go to my brothers and uh, warn them of this place as they come here, um, Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe that one is raised from the dead. So, um, again, it's not, it's not miracles. And people have faith in miracles. Satan has faith in miracles. Uh, you know, the demons believe and tremble. But um, you know, God will work through miracles to get people's attention. But then there has to be something else. There has to be faith based upon his words. Um, there has to be the humbled heart. There has to be the bowed knee. There has to be, um, you know, a willingness to be taught of God. And that only God can give. So, you know, again, God will use the miracles. Um, C.S. Lewis says God will use sufferings. Sufferings is God's megaphone. But no one got converted just because they suffered. No one got converted just because they saw a miracle. The knowledge of God is, is, uh, is knowledge that's born of intimate relationship, religious commitment that's born of faith. Um, faith brings us into the presence of God and the knowledge of God that comes from that presence. We'll say more on the subject of knowledge this morning in the morning worship because we're dealing with a passage that at least I think four or five times it says, the know me, know me, know me, know me. So we're, we're going to touch upon that. Um, Thank you, guys. You, this is stimulating. I appreciate the questions. I hope we've gone down some roads that have been helpful. And um, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time to consider these things. And we pray that we would not just end here with what we've said this morning. Help us to search your word in the light of the things we've discussed. And it would give us a keener insight and keener understanding. That, Lord, our awareness of the things of God would become deeper and our appreciation for who you are and the things you've done in Christ our Lord would, would, um, would abound uh, to your glory. So we pray you'd help us to, again, consider these things and we look to you to give us understanding in them as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.